0: Please hold on to that Bible and give it to me afterwards so it can be destroyed or or at least removed from circulation. And you're going to have to look in the table of contents if you can't figure out where Jonah is. So, Jonah chapter 3. There was a famous American pastor in the South who was deeply biblical and passionately spiritual and proudly American... And people said that he had a good grasp of God's grace, but he also wasn't shy about preaching about God's justice. He would communicate to people how God blessed those who who revere him and how God punishes those who are wicked. And this preacher boldly preached this message against whoever he felt deserved it. Corrupt leaders in the community, Uh, the ACLU when they uh, pushed an anti-religious agenda on America, Um, Hollywood, um, politicians on both sides of the aisle when they were corrupt or dishonest. This preacher had a deep heart for God and and for what was right, and, and he was grieved that America was growing increasingly wicked and unrepentant toward God. In recent years, however, a favorite target of his message of judgment was not America but radical Islam, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. He condemned them and he assured his hearers that eventually their unapologetic wickedness would catch up with them, not his hearers, but that of these Muslim extremists, And, and that God would judge them and God would bring them down. And this message, as you can imagine, resonated with his audience, bringing them comfort in the face of the uneasiness and the insecurity about terrorism that they felt, and so this preacher's popularity grew and grew. Then one day God spoke to this man. It wasn't an audible voice, but this preacher had the unmistakable sense that he'd heard from God. And God's message was this. I've heard you preach a message of judgment about radical Islam. Now go, I'm sending you to preach it to radical Islam. Go, go to the mountains of Pakistan, go to the hills of Afghanistan and preach to them that my judgment is coming on them. Whoa. What do you do if you get a message from God like that? Well, I'll tell you what this pastor did. He resigned from his position at his large church in Atlanta and he bought a plane ticket for Seattle. He thought he might find a... (laughs) He thought he could find maybe a downstairs coffee shop somewhere where he could get a job and hide out. He boarded a westbound flight, and as his 737 climbed westward and he settled in for the flight, suddenly he felt a shudder. And then there was a large bang, and as the smell uh, of faint smoke began to permeate the cabin, He felt the plane losing altitude. A lot of thoughts passed through this pastor's head, and as I'm sure they did for everyone on the plane, but the main thought was this. Oh no, God, you've caught up with me already. Well, to make a long story short, the story had a happy ending, perhaps as a result of the desperate prayers of that pastor. Lord, have mercy! Lord, I'm sorry. I've been running from you. I've been ducking your will. Please don't let us die. I'll do whatever you want. And about a week later, after the initial trauma of the controlled crash landing that that he went through had begun to subside, this preacher again heard the unmistakable voice of God. Go. Go to the mountains of Pakistan. Go to the hills of Afghanistan and preach to them the message that I will give you. This time the man went. He got his shots, he got his passport, by some small miracle, he got the visas he needed, and he headed to Pakistan. And with God's help, no doubt, he managed to hire a guide and and to find a translator, and he headed to the hills to find anyone he could sympathetic to the cause of radical Islam. He told them all the same thing. Within one month, your cause will be ruined. You will be found, you will be captured or killed, your end is at hand. And wherever this patriotic preacher preached, wonder of wonders, the people responded. They tore their clothing, they fasted, they wept, they prayed, they changed their ways. Now here's perhaps the most amazing part of the story. Osama bin Laden himself got word that this was going on. That this crazy American cleric was going around discouraging his men and and warning them that their cause was about to collapse. And when bin Laden heard this, he responded by taking it as a word from Allah. Bin Laden wept. Bin Laden proclaimed a fast throughout his terror network and, and in all the mosques and villages where his Key sympathizers were found where he had influence. He urged them to pray to Allah for mercy and to turn from their evil ways. And they did, en masse. What an incredible revival. Now, I'm not suggesting that these people stopped being Muslims. And I don't know if they stopped hating America. But nevertheless, when God saw the genuine repentance of these radical Muslims, a repentance which ironically is rarely seen in America, God's compassion was aroused. And he had mercy on these Muslims and he didn't bring any trouble on them. Well, when the American pastor saw this, guess what he did? He got furious. He shook his fist at God and he said, Isn't this why I ran away to Seattle in the first place? I knew that you're a gracious and a compassionate God, that you're slow to anger and abounding in love, uh, that you're a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it would be better for me to die than to live. But God replied, What right do you have to be angry? shouldn't I have mercy on these people who I made in my own image? They didn't know any better. Shouldn't I have mercy and show mercy to them as I showed it to you when I saved you from that plane crash? Shouldn't I have mercy on them too? Well, that in a nutshell is the story of Jonah, a message from God to us. It's a message about nationalism. It's a message about missions. It's a message about religious hypocrisy. It's a message about loving our enemies. It's a message about giving away the mercy that we've received even to our wicked enemies. If I had to sum up the message of Jonah in one sentence, it would be this. God has had mercy on us, Shouldn't we help him extend his mercy to our enemies too? Shouldn't we? Well, let's look at Jonah chapter 3, which is our passage for today. So far in the story of Jonah, God's word has come to Jonah, telling him to go to the great city of Nineveh and to preach against it. Now, who are these Ninevites? They were the inhabitants of one of the greatest cities of Assyria at that time. The Assyrians were growing in power in uh, Jonah's day. They were fast becoming one of the great empires, one of the greatest empires the ancient Near East had known. And they were renowned for their wickedness and for their cruelty. The Assyrians were a people that everyone, and especially God's people, the Israelites, loved to hate. The Assyrians were enemies of Israel. In fact, they were the people who would eventually viciously attack and utterly decimate the land and the people of Israel. Why? Because although Israel hated to admit this, God's people were fast becoming as wicked as the Assyrians were. Israel wouldn't follow their God. They wouldn't listen to his prophets. They wouldn't repent and do what was right. Well, God sends his prophet Jonah to Nineveh to preach judgment on that enemy city. And Jonah thinks this is a terrible idea. And so, prophet of God, though he was, he he disobeyed God and he ran the other way. So he boards a ship and while he's sleeping on the ship, God stirs up a terrible storm The superstitious pagan sailors on the ship turn to their gods and and eventually, through a process of divination, they they find out that it's Jonah's God, the Lord, who has brought the storm on them. Jonah knows that he's disobeyed God and and that he deserves to die and that's why God sent the storm. And so he says if the sailors will throw him into the sea, he'll die and, and he'll get the judgment that he deserves and the sailors will be spared. Well, eventually they do this, and Jonah winds up in the sea, and miraculously, the, the stormy sea subsides. And the pagan sailors, the story tells us, worship Jonah's God. And as all this plays out, we discover that these sailors are, are more godly than Jonah is. While Jonah is sleeping, they're praying. While he's running from the Lord, they wind up sacrificing and making vows to the Lord. And this spiritual receptivity among the pagans is a harbinger of things to come. Well, God in his mercy isn't finished with Jonah. Jonah's in the sea, he's about to drown, which from a Jewish perspective is is just about the worst way you can go for a number of reasons. But God has mercy on Jonah and and brings along a large fish or a whale to swallow Jonah up. There are several historical accounts which, if they're true, confirm that a person can survive for some time inside of a sperm whale. And in the whale's belly, Jonah prays a prayer of thanksgiving for God's salvation. We just uh, recited it together. Jonah thanks God for saving him from the terrible death that he knew that he deserved. Jonah has experienced God's mercy, and he's grateful to God in this prayer for it. Well, after three days and nights, God commands the creature to vomit Jonah out onto dry land, and that's where we pick up our story in chapter 3. Now that Jonah has, in a sense, died and been resurrected, now that he's experienced God's merciful salvation... God speaks to him a second time. Go, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach the message that I'll give you. It's a new beginning. In his redemptive mercy, God has given Jonah a clean slate to start again. Jonah can begin again, and this time he obeys God. He goes to Nineveh to proclaim whatever message God will give him there. Now, notice what we learn about God in this story so far. We learn that God is merciful. God spared the disobedience prophet's life and uh, gave him a second chance. And in the process, God makes himself known to a bunch of pagan sailors. We see God's mercy. We also learn that God is all-knowing and and all-seeing and present everywhere. The theologians call this God's omniscience and God's omnipresence. Jonah can run, but Jonah can't hide from God. God knows where Jonah is and God finds him. God is there. God sees. We also see that God is sovereign. God is in control of the seas and the winds. God is in control of the great creatures of the sea. Both sea and sea creatures were greatly feared by ancient people, but God, our God, has tamed them, and they do his bidding. It's ironic that everything in this story obeys God, except Jonah. The sea obeys, the sea creatures obey, but the prophet of God does not. That's the way it is with us human beings, unfortunately. We're the only creatures in God's creation who regularly disobey God's will. And God has given us the freedom to do so. All right, well, back to our story. Jonah's reached Nineveh now. Verse 3 tells us that Nineveh was a very great city. And interpreters and translators differ on whether this means that it was great in size or that it was great in importance. And thus they differ on whether a visit required three days because there was so much territory to cover or whether uh, it required three days because there were certain um, ancient protocols to observe in an important city like this. Requirements about hospitality. If you know anything about the Middle East, there's culture and there's hospitality and there's channels you have to go through to convey your message to all of the important people. Well, either way, the point is that Jonah has a big job ahead of him. Three long days worth. But notice what happens. No sooner has Jonah entered this great city and become sharing his message, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned, than these people start to repent. From day one. Immediately. In fact, we never get to day or... Uh, day two or day three in the story, because immediately, like one toppling domino, setting off a chain reaction of others, people start repenting like crazy. They believe God. They declare a fast. All of them, from the least to the greatest, they put on sackcloth, a sign of mourning. And this wasn't just some popular movement among the gullible masses. No, word quickly gets to the king himself, and and even the king and his nobles repent. The king issues a decree requiring that everyone fast and wear sackcloth and pray urgently to God. Unless you think this is just religious window dressing, listen to verse 8. The king urges the people to give up their evil ways and their violence. He urges them to, to genuinely repent and to change their ways, and they do, from the least to the greatest. Even the animals are involved. Isn't that strange? I think, again, the narrator wants to stress just how genuine and serious and comprehensive this repentance is. It extends from the king himself on his throne all the way down to the goat in the field. Let me ask you, where else in the Bible do we find this kind of repentance? There aren't too many places that come to mind, are there? I can think of maybe one or two. This kind of repentance is a rare and a wonderful occurrence. And who's repenting? Not God's people. In fact, read the minor prophets, some of whom were Jonah's contemporaries. They were pulling out their hair because God's people refused to repent. But wicked pagan Nineveh repents. And so they get to serve as an example to the rest of us. Amazing. The wicked enemies of God's people prove more receptive to God than God's own people and God's own prophet who began this gig by running from God. Talk about an offensive message. I hope to at least some extent we're all offended here this morning because it means we're, we're, we're getting the point. Notice also that there's no evidence that these Ninevites start worshiping the true God. In fact, translators disagree on how to translate the word God in this story. Should it be capital G God, as in the true God that the Israelites know, or should it be small g God, as in one of the many gods that the Ninevites worshipped? I suspect that the Ninevites thought that This was just one of the many gods that they worshipped. And here's why. First, notice what Jonah's message is. Jonah doesn't even mention God or, or, or teach the Ninevites about his God. He simply states 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Also notice... Up to this point in the story, if you read through Jonah 1 and 2, the narrator has been using the name for Israel's God, Yahweh, written LORD in all caps in our, in our English Bibles. But now, in chapter 3, he switches. Here in Nineveh, he starts using the generic word for God, Elohim. Elohim can mean God, capital G, or it can mean a God, small g. When the Israelites said Elohim, they were talking about the true God. But when other pagan peoples heard Elohim, they thought of any number of gods. So by the end of this story, it isn't even clear whether these pagan Ninevites know any more about the true God than they did before. As far as we know from this story and everything else we know about the Assyrians, they continued to be pagan polytheists worshiping many gods and idols. But the point of the story of Jonah is that these wicked pagan people repent at the preaching of Jonah, no matter how shaky or mistaken their notions of God were. And the point is that the true God responds by showing them mercy, by putting aside his judgment that he had planned for them. God is no respecter of persons. So let us never think that we're better than anyone else or or that we have an inside line with God and so we deserve mercy and other people don't. So our key biblical truth for today is this. God is free to have mercy on whoever he chooses, even on our wicked enemies. All right, let's focus in now on verse 10 our last verse because it's a puzzling sentence and when we understand the puzzle we under- unlock a wonderful truth the niv translation of this verse reads when god saw what the ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways he had compassion on them and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened the niv says god had compassion most other modern translations say god relented these translations are trying to soften the reality, which is that God did not do what God said he was going to do. God said he was going to throw or overthrow Nineveh, but he didn't do it. The New Living Translation says it straight out God changed his mind. God said he was going to do one thing, but instead he did another. How do we reconcile this with the fact that the Bible tells us elsewhere that God never changes? That God is steadfast, dependable, trustworthy, not given to to uh, flights of fancy or to fickle inconsistency. Can God change his mind? Well, the answer is actually quite simple, and it's that God does not change, but we change. And when we change, God adjusts accordingly. This happened recently with one of our children. We try to limit the amount of sugar that our kids eat. And after one of the holidays, there was some leftover candy kicking around the house. And the rule is, if you want some candy, you better ask mom and dad. You don't just help yourself to it. Well, one day we had told our kids that there would be dessert after dinner that night. But in the afternoon, one of them got into the candy without asking. And when we found out, the consequence was, all right, well, you've had your sweets for today, no dessert tonight. Now, we hadn't changed. We were consistent with the principle, moderation in the area of sweets. But they had changed by eating candy that they weren't supposed to, and so we had to adjust accordingly to be consistent with them. And that's what God does. And God actually spells this principle out plainly in Jeremiah eighteen seven to 10. Listen to what he says. He says, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at any other time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. God does not change, but when we change, God adjusts accordingly. There's good news and there's bad news here. The good news is that in this lifetime, it's never too late to repent. God may warn us conditionally if you don't change your ways then I will punish you but even if he doesn't give a condition even if God just warns us categorically I am going to punish you period it's still not too late to change our ways because if we change God may adjust too in his mercy to this new situation God always reserves the right to be merciful to those who repent, just like he did for Nineveh. The bad news is that past blessing and favor do not guarantee future blessing. If a people walks in God's ways and God blesses them, but then that people drifts from God and and into sin and they stay there and they don't repent then again, God reserves the right to adjust and to respond to them with punishment. That should be a sober warning for our country, shouldn't it? God doesn't owe us anything. If we walk in his ways, he may bless us. But if we turn from him, he can find another nation to work with, thank you very much. In fact, God can work with our wicked enemies and can raise them up to follow him. But let's not wait for our nation to repent. Let's begin by repenting ourselves and make sure that we are walking right with God. Just like Jonah had to do in the belly of that whale. And God forgave Jonah. And God gave him a new beginning. And God taught him that that God is merciful And if God will be merciful to us, shouldn't we have mercy on our wicked enemies too? (coughs) And in fact, God wants to teach us, as he tried to teach Jonah, to become merciful ourselves so that we can willingly help God extend his mercy to enemies. Okay, so here's the challenge for us. Let's start by remembering our mission statement. Our purpose at CBC is, say it with me, knowing God, growing together, showing Christ. And the book of Jonah teaches us about the showing Christ part. One way to sum up the message of Jonah is expand your circle of concern. Expand your circle of concern. At the beginning of the story of Jonah, Jonah is only concerned about himself and his own people, the Israelites. His circle is small. But God works with him. God tries to teach him to care about some pagan sailors and then to care about some wicked Ninevites. God is challenging him to expand his circle of concern. How about you? How big is your circle of concern? Is it just you inside that circle? That's what our... Our uh, culture teaches us to look out for number one. It's all about you. Maybe your family's in there. Maybe your friends are in there too. Your circle's getting a little bigger. Maybe your church. Maybe your political party, but not the other party. Your circle's getting bigger. Maybe your nation. How big is your circle? Well, in your bulletin, I believe there's an insert in there with a circle on it. Maybe if one of you can find it and let's say what color it is is it in there Joan did you no. oh it's not in there all right I wasn't around on Friday so we got our wires crossed if you could pull out a blank piece of paper the back of one of your inserts and draw a circle on it nice and big but don't fill up the whole paper you should be able to find hopefully a pencil or a pen in the seat back in front of you If you can draw a circle, I invite you to take a minute and to write inside that circle who your life is dedicated to caring about. Who's in your circle of concern? Take a minute. When you're done with that, if you can be honest, write outside of that circle, somewhere else on your paper, those you don't particularly care about. Maybe it's some family members, maybe coworkers or neighbors, maybe enemies, maybe those different from you, whoever comes to mind. Write them outside of the circle. Now consider this: God is challenging us to expand our circles just like he challenged Jonah and through the book of Jonah challenged has been challenging his people ever since because God's circle is big enough to embrace the whole world and if we are going to walk with God, our circle needs to increasingly grow until it matches his circle. So here's the challenge from the book of Jonah as we seek to be a church who shows Christ to the world. Who's outside your circle? Can you see them how God sees them? And can you expand your circle of concern to include them also? Specifically, this week, can you pick to get started, one person or one group of people who are outside of your circle, and can you do something tangible to begin caring about them? Amen.